Well, how'd you do? How'd you do on keeping that New Year's resolution you made 365 days ago? Did you lose all that weight? Did you read all the books you said you were going to read this year? Did you organize all your closets and drawers? Did you employ that Marie Kondo method and eliminate everything that doesn't spark joy in your life? That's terrifying when you think sometimes um, as kids frustrate you. Can they go? (laughs) Did you manage to save more, read more, travel more? And you swore this year, really last year, would be the year. And that you would finally accomplish all your personal goals. This was going to be the year that you finally got everything you've been hoping for. You know, there's really no sense in asking someone the question, do you have hope? Right? It isn't a question of if you and I have hope. We all have hope. In fact, to be human is to hope. We are born with innate longings and desires, some of which seem obtainable while others seem just out of reach. And we all have hope in something or someone, even if we're not even consciously aware of it. Many of us have a hope that we're deliberately working towards seeing come to fruition, right? I'm going to go to school, graduate from that school, and then I'm going to get that long sought-after job. And once I get the job, I'm going to work harder so I can get the longed-for promotion so I can finally reach the top. Or maybe it's something like, I'm going to find this year the perfect spouse so I can enter into the perfect marriage and have the perfect kids. That's quite a hope. Uh, Maybe your hope, you wouldn't share it with others, but maybe your hope this past year has been, this might be the year that I finally win the lottery. And I'm going to quit my job and buy a boat, and I'm just going to sail around the world. I won't ask for a show of hands. but And obviously, some human hopes are more realistic than others. Hope can be an elusive term to try and nail down. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as this. Desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. Uh, Expectation of fulfillment or success, something desired or hoped for. Uh, I liked John MacArthur's succinct definition of it. He simply called hope confident optimism. And many of our deepest hopes and longings ultimately have joy as their baseline aspiration or goal, right? We don't want much. We just want to be fully and eternally happy. That's my hope. Only problem is, when it comes to hope, satisfaction isn't always guaranteed. Therefore, it's worth asking ourselves this one question, is my deepest hope the kind of hope that's really worth having? Looking at our text for this morning, let me give us some background. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, the apostle Peter is writing to first century believers who were living throughout modern day Turkey, which was a part of the Roman Empire at that time. Uh, More specifically, Peter is writing to believers who are afraid. They weren't exactly sure what was going on. They were confident that they were in the last days, yet Christ hadn't returned yet. And those early believers were beginning to question the very existence, the very essence of their faith in Christ. Their expectations of God and their belief in Him were sadly beginning to wane. 
In short, these people were beginning to lose hope. And so Peter writes to them. I've gotten a lot of encouraging notes in my lifetime, but none as encouraging as Peter's letter. And Peter writes to these early Christians for many reasons. One, to rekindle their joy as followers of Christ. Second, he writes to them to reassure them of the genuine nature of their salvation. And thirdly, he writes to them to plead with them, to beg them, please, don't lose hope. And Peter seeks to accomplish these things by presenting his hearers with substantive truths about their life in Christ so as to remind them of what they know but had seemingly forgotten. And isn't, the, isn't that the same for us? So many things we know, we've just forgotten. And so as we consider the year ahead of us, 2023, and there's really no better way to start the year than gathering together as the family of God. But as we consider this year ahead and, and all of the hopes and longings that come with it, I thought it'd be fitting for us to consider the truths found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. And so if you're able to at this time, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we consider a hope worth having. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together in your word. We pray that you would open up these truths and write them upon our hearts once again so that we might be prepared for the way that lies before us. We thank you, Lord, that we can indeed trust in you and wait upon you, knowing that you always keep your promises. I give you thanks for the fellowship of the saints and for the preached word, Lord. Pray that you would be glorified today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. And so in this text, we find essentially eight dynamics of the Christian hope. The Christian hope. Number one, it's a hope that is rooted. A hope that is rooted. Right? To hope for something often demands that you trust in someone or something. Something or someone is going to have to come through if this is going to 
if my hope is going to come to fruition. And Peter begins in his quest to renew hope, to stir joy within his readers. He begins with an exuberant burst of praise. Verse three, blessed or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it makes sense that he would begin here because the Christian's life is to be a life filled not with worry or doubt or fear, but with great praise for God. After all, our hope rests solely in him. It was author Ruth Graham Bell who once said, worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. And oftentimes the root of our, of our worry and our doubt and our anxiety as Christians is nothing less than stubborn unbelief, right? It's, it's nothing less than a refusal to trust in our loving heavenly father. Uh, Helmut Thielicke, a German pastor who served during World War II, once said this. He said, every care, every concern or worry is a vote of no confidence in God. Isn't that true? When I doubt, when I worry, I'm essentially saying, I don't know if you're going to come through for me, Lord. Whenever we worry as individuals, we're essentially saying to our creator and our sustainer, God, I, I simply don't trust you to care for me. And such doubt is simply inexcusable given the unlimited power and trustworthy character of the one who holds all things together, right? Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. What is more, such a spirit of worry is actually a sinful attitude because it ultimately fails to take God at his word by believing his promises. And Peter's desire is to, to replace the worry and the doubt and anxiety that exists in the heart of his hearers with that of joy and hope. And so here in verse three, Peter begins his letter by affirming the fact that God is totally worthy and fully deserving of every single ounce of our praise because he alone is ultimately the, the divine source of our eternal hope. In fact, Peter continues by giving the profound reasons for his initial ex exclamation. Uh, blessed be, right? Why, Peter? Why? Well, he answers that question in the rest of the passage. Every, everything else in this text stands as reasons for praising God as well as glorious promises that pertain to the believer's hope. Number one, our hope is a hope that is rooted, namely in God. Number two, it is a hope that is robust. A hope that is robust. Middle of verse three, he continues, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again or born anew. And it's here that we discover one of God's greatest attributes coupled with one of his greatest works. It's because of his great and abundant mercy that he's caused us to be born again. He has caused us, right? The catalyst for our having been born again, born of the spirit is God himself. Peter wants to, wants to start it where, where it should begin. He did it. God pulled it off. God took it upon himself to initiate the new birth of every believer. You see, he's the giver of our new life, which is 
might I add, amazing, given that our first life was an utter failure, right? If you don't know how that went, read Genesis 3. And praise God, it, it wasn't upon us to try and somehow cause or discover spiritual life as if that were even possible to begin with. Make no mistake about it, we are utterly incapable of accomplishing our own spiritual regeneration. Ephesians 2, that familiar passage, one of the greatest summaries of our salvation. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy, same ideas in our text, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And notice, would you, again, Paul points out what Peter points out, that it was God and God alone who took the initiative in our salvation. Men and women, salvation occurs solely by the sovereign will and workings of the almighty God. Which is why in John 6, Jesus states plainly, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. In 2 Timothy 1, 9, Paul speaks of God, quote, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, and, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And men and women, this is everything. Because the greatest thing that could ever happen to you or to me in this life is for us to be born again. Do you believe that? But it's God who must change our fallen human will by his sovereign will. John 3, 3, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must be born of the spirit. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, there's no improving your old nature, mending it up and beautifying it into perfection. The thing is hopeless and it must die and be buried. He says, the scripture does not say ye must be improved, but rather ye must be born again. That is quite another thing, Spurgeon says. He concludes by saying, you must be made new creatures in Christ Jesus. Men and women, the, the new birth is a work that is accomplished solely by God. It's, it's what theologians have labeled as a monergistic work. In other words, we're not born again partially by God and, and partially by ourselves. It's, it's simply not a joint effort. Rather, there is one acting agent in our new birth as Christians, and it is God which is why the glory goes to him. Just as we didn't play a role in our physical birth, we as believers do not contribute to our spiritual birth. Again, John, John 1, verse 12 and 13, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And praise God, we who are in Christ, have indeed been born again into a new family, the family of God. And with this new spiritual birth has come a new heart and a new mind and new spiritual eyes and ears 
and a new nature with new desires, and yes, a new hope. Our hope is rooted. Secondly, it's robust. Thirdly, our hope as believers is a hope that is living. It's living. Peter says we've been born again, regenerated to a living hope. Hope, right? And, and when he uses that word hope, he's not referring to some ambiguous desire. It's not like Peter saying, I'm hoping like you that things might turn out. Hopefully everything comes out in the wash. No, Peter is speaking of the present and confident anticipation of a future and divinely guaranteed reality. And Peter says that our hope as Christians is in fact a living hope. I mean, just consider, think about the hope you have for the year ahead. And as you consider the nature of that, ask yourself, is it a living hope? Not one that's lame, not one that's limp or lifeless, an active hope rather than a passive hope, a hope that's hearty and robust. I have to ask that, not just of myself. Well, I definitely have to ask that of myself, but I put that question out there because so many human hopes are DOA, largely because they're ultimately tied to temporary worldly realities. If you are in Christ, you have been born again to a living hope. And how did God do that? Answer through the miraculous work of his own son. Look at the end of verse three. Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. That's what makes our hope ultimately a living hope because it's rooted in and sovereignly bound to the one who died and rose again. It's living because Christ is living. Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Peter's sermon at Pentecost Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, Peter says, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Romans 6, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who, are, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk and newness of life. Listen, for the Christian, everything hinges on this one event, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not an understatement. It is absolutely central to our hope as believers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Right? If Christ is still in the grave, you all can go home. And I can step down from this platform. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's far worse. It's not just that you're wasting your time. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, 
then that guilty sentence still hangs over your head. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, the first Adam came death, by a man, Jesus, the last Adam, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. No greater words than that. Our hope as believers is indeed a living hope. Fourth, it's a hope that is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Peter says we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It cannot decay. It is pure, and it is eternal. Right? There's no, there, there are very few guarantees in this life, but in the life to come, where it really matters... Well, Peter says we're actually given divine proofs and promises. Romans 10, 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And more specifically, much of our spiritual inheritance that Peter's referring to here, it actually centers in the future kingdom of God, which will be consummated following the visible return of Christ. And on that day, the day we hope for and, and long for and are guaranteed, we as Christians will share in the glorious manifestation of the reign and rule of our Savior and our King. Truth be told, it would have been grace enough for God to have rescued us from hell. True? Just saved from hell. In no way was he ever obligated to forgive us or ransom us. But Peter tells us that God has not only delivered us, but he has actually promised us something, something that will last for all eternity. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul includes this amidst the catalog of our spiritual blessings in verse 11, where he says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In fact, as if it couldn't get any better, God has not only given us the hope of the greatest inheritance possible, but he's also actually keeping it in the greatest place. Look at the end of verse four. He says, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Do you understand the full power of those words? I mean, I'll be honest with you. When it comes to not losing stuff, I'm not good. Hats, keys, clothes, my Bible sometimes. Sweetie, have you seen it? Where'd it go? I, it, it was just here. I did that not an hour ago, didn't I, sweetie? Where are my shoes? I need my shoes. But Peter says this hope and this treasure and this promised inheritance is kept. It's being protected against loss or harm by an ever watchful divine guard. 
And the implication there is that what God works to provide, he also works to protect. Our our hope as believers is guaranteed. Fifth, it's a hope that's guarded. Peter says, for you, verse five, who by God's power are being guarded. And this word guarded in the Greek is actually different from the word at the end of verse four, where we see the word kept. In verse five, it's actually this compound word that carries with it the picture of something being kept uh, under, uh, under a watchful eye by a defending garrison or protected by a military guard. This isn't just, you know, in a pocket drawer. Peter says, not only is the gift, our inheritance being guarded, but you yourself are being guarded. And there we find the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Guarded how exactly, Peter? He says, through faith. Through faith, which, which, a faith which, is, which God has sovereignly instilled within us as believers. 1 John 5, beginning in verse 4. John says, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? John asks, except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And so the faith that stands as a mark of our new birth is the same faith that secures us for all eternity. Being empowered by God himself. Our hope is that we simply cannot fall away. We will not fall away. And that's how, but... What exactly are we being guarded for? We'll look at the end of verse five. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here Peter has a, turns his focus to the final aspects of our salvation. To try and stir joy, to try and renew hope. Peter reminds his listeners and us that we are being protected by our sovereignly working, all-powerful God so that we might one day become both the recipients of an eternal birthright as well as the inhabitants of God's eternal kingdom. To which I have to stop and say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Romans 8, you know these words well, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see what Paul actually did there? Paul is so confident of his glorification and our glorification that he speaks of it as if it's already happened. Colossians 3, verse 3 and 4, Paul says you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I cannot overstate the case. Our salvation is entirely a work of God from beginning to end. And make no mistake about it. 
God always finishes what he begins. He starts it, it's as good as done. And that includes his marvelous work in you and in me. Our hope is guarded. Sixth, it's a hope that endures. Look at verse six. Peter says, in this, and in this refers to everything he's spoken of, the the entire full glorious reality of our redemption. In this you rejoice. Of course we rejoice. How could we not? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I want to make it crystal clear. The hope that Christianity holds out has never been come to Jesus and all of your problems will be solved. If that's what you were told at entry level, you were lied to. The follower of Christ is not exempt from difficulties and trials. In fact, we're guaranteed difficulties and trials. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you want to avoid persecution? Then don't live a godly life. And certainly don't proclaim Christ crucified. You'll fit in quite nicely in the world you live in. Nevertheless, the hope of the believer always It always manifests itself in enduring and triumphant joy. Why? Because it is the Lord who sustains such joy within us amidst every hardship. There's always a reason to rejoice. Philippians, a book about rejoicing, a book about joy. Chapter three, verse one. And let me remind you, Paul is writing this not from a a, a luxury suite, or a penthouse, but from prison. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he he comes back to it later, chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul isn't just saying, you know, like that great 90s song by Bobby McFerrin. Don't worry, be happy. That's, That's not Paul's statement. He's not saying just cheer up. Rather, his command is rejoice in the Lord always. He says to the brother and sister in Christ, ever and always, find your joy in him. Find your joy in the Lord. And find your joy in what he's doing through those painful trials, right? Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Peter's saying that, that our faith under the, under the fire, under the scrutiny of trials and persecution, it ultimately proves to be authentic. It's shown to contain no impurities, which makes it incredibly valuable. What Peter's stating here in verses six and seven is is key because ultimately a a faith that isn't tested is really no faith at all. It's been said unshakable faith comes from having your faith shaken. So often we view our burdens and our trials as evidence or proof that God seemingly doesn't love us or care for us. 
And women, nothing could be further from the truth. Our earthly troubles, these burdens that we now bear here on earth, they're absolutely priceless to the Lord because they're accomplishing his great work in you. And so they can be priceless to you as well because they serve the divine purpose of refining you and making you like Christ who suffered for your sake and for mine. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy. There it is again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There James is saying that ultimately a, a multitude of trials is, is sure to result in a mature faith. You want to avoid trials? Well, James says, let me warn you, the result is immature faith. You need to go through this. God wants you to go through this. And maybe that's the more bitter pill to swallow. That God is allowing these things into our lives that, that shake our foundation. And feel like they're on the verge of crushing our spirit. I don't, I don't, I don't preach that in a heady way. Having seen my brother and sister-in-law lose her brother. And to look at that and to suffer that loss, that could crush you. That could crush any one of us. But to know that God is using something that painful to accomplish good, to accomplish his will, well, that's the kind of hope I want to have. Peter tells us here in these verses that when we have this living hope, the kind of hope that God himself both grants and sustains, no matter what our ever-changing circumstances are, our divine reason for joy, it never changes because God never changes. What is more, it's by the practical testing of our faith that our hope in Christ is proven sure. And even more so, Jesus himself is uniquely glorified. Look at the end of verse seven. Here Peter tells us that our hope is also a hope that exalts. He says, you've been grieved by various trials, verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the appearing of Jesus Christ. And women, every hope for the future has a way of dictating our actions and our behaviors in the present. And if we believe it to be as good as done, well, we will in fact live as if it's already been accomplished. And so with Christ, with King Jesus as our living hope, it is his glory that we as Christians ultimately seek and live for. Not just in this life, but in the life to come which means every opportunity to suffer for our Lord 
can ultimately be seen as an act of service in homage to our eternal king. Knowing that in the end, no matter how much we suffer, it really will truly be worth it. And Peter says in verse 8, though you've not seen him, though you've not seen Christ, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the problem. The believers there in the first century were saying, he said he'd come back. He promised us. Where is he? And yet Peter says, even though you don't see him, I know that God is working you to such a degree that you still love him, which is why you long for him. Verse eight essentially captures for us the very essence and definition of true saving faith. Second Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us that as Christians, we indeed walk by faith, not by sight. And though obviously we cannot physically see the risen Jesus as those first disciples did, we can see him with eyes of faith, not just in God's word, but also in our own lives, in the lives of other believers. But it ultimately, again, comes down to our understanding of who Christ is. Right? Everything hinges on this question. Do you see Jesus Christ as being more beautiful and more glorious and more satisfying than anything or anyone else? Anything the world could offer? Is Christ better? And for each and every one of us, he either is or he isn't. So why do we believe why do we love Christ? Why do we believe in him despite having never seen him face to face? Because the Father is working in us to cause us to love him through the work of his spirit. He's the sovereign catalyst for our sustained belief and for our glorious joy, which is precisely why God himself must be our deepest hope and longing. Which brings us to the end of the text. Peter affirms the fact that our hope as believers is not just all those other things, but it is also essential. It's essential. This is a hope you must have. Look at verse 9. Peter says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Men and women, the greatest problem as humans is our sin, it's not low self esteem. It's not bad looks. It's not what's happened in the past or what's going on right now. Your greatest problem in life, in this life, is sin, which means your greatest need is salvation. None of us can reconcile ourselves to God, no matter how hard we try. Therefore, redemption is hands down the greatest need of every human soul. And we need God to intervene. We need him to work. And praise God for those of us who are in Christ. God is indeed doing just that. Paul tells us, Philippians 1.6, I'm, I'm sure of this, 
There it is, that confident anticipation. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, I guarantee you are not living your best life now. No, the best is yet to come. And from our perspective as believers, that good work began in our lives the moment we placed our faith and trust in our Savior. And as we consider it, as we consider our living hope, which is rooted in God through his work in Christ, who has been resurrected, we begin to see every other hope for what it is. Right? Every other hope, it ultimately rests upon our shoulders. Every other hope needs to be accomplished by our own strength if it's going to happen. But this hope, this living hope that we hold as Christians, it's been determined by God from the dawn of creation. And he will indeed bring it to fruition in and through Christ. Hebrews 6, 19, 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, a hope that's embodied in Christ, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that being the presence of God. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's our hope, Christ. And that is the only name by which we can be saved. What is more, there's no other name, Peter says in Acts 4, under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. There it is again. That's your greatest need. You must be saved. Praise God, Jesus is the only one that can save us and has saved us. He's the only one who can stabilize us amidst an unstable world. Men and women, you and I can rejoice in the year ahead. If we are in Christ, knowing that he is our only hope, not just for this life, not just now, but for all eternity. So in closing, what are you hoping for in 2023? Better circumstances, greater health, nicer possessions, maybe a carefree life. Those sound awfully nice. Well, in these seven verses, Peter describes for us the glorious realities of the believer's salvation. And let me add, they are just a part of an even larger hope that God's word lays out for us as believers. Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. John MacArthur says, without the clear and certain promises of the word of God, the believer has no basis for hope. Which is why it's crucial we be in God's word so that we might be reminded of our hope. Is your hope in the here and now? Is it solely in what is physical and present? John says, 1 John 2.17, the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what are you going to cling to in the year ahead, not knowing what lies ahead? 
James 4.14 says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What's it going to be? What is your hope? And what is the determining factor? What's the guarantee that you will ever see that hope come to fruition? Is it your own ability? Is it the knowledge you possess, the power you possess? Is it the simple belief that, you know, I just, I just think it's really going to happen for me this year? Or is it the sovereign power and promise of the living God of the universe? For many people living today, their hope is that when they come to the end of their life, that they're going to enter into heaven. And that is a false hope. Because there is no faith. There is no love. There is no work. But there can be. And there is hope that you and I have the joy, the blessed joy of taking to them and telling them of Christ. They need to hear it. And they may need to hear it a lot before it finally sinks in. But God has got to be the determinator, the, the determiner of our hope in order for it to truly last. Peter writes this passage so that he might demonstrate to his readers why they can hold on to their hope in God. Because the God in whom they hope, the God in whom we hope and trust, is ultimately trustworthy. So in the year ahead and for years to come, I pray that you and I wouldn't be satisfied with anything else other than this hope, a living hope, the only hope that's worth having. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you call us to come to you. Those who labor, those who are heavy laden, we can come to you and you will give us rest. And you promise us, you assure us that you are gentle and, and lowly in heart. Why would we ever not come to you? Lord, we thank you for our salvation, which rests secure. We thank you for our future. That chapter is not left unwritten. We simply have not stepped into it yet. But it is guaranteed. And it rests in the perfect one who came, took on our flesh, died, and who rose from the grave. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. We thank you for our salvation. May we carry that message into the world all around us to those who remain hopeless. We give you the praise for all these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.